Hello and welcome back to Elmtown. I am your host, Kevin Yank, and I'm joined today by Manuel Fuchs. Manuel, welcome to Elmtown. Thanks for having me. Manuel is the creator of Elm Boy, a Game Boy emulator written in Elm. But before we get to that and answering all of your many questions about that, listener, I'm sure you instantly have many questions as I did. Let's talk about our sponsors. We want to thank Ellie at ellie-app.com, a web app for sharing, compiling, and running small pieces of Elm. It's a super useful tool when talking about Elm, and I encourage you to use it if you haven't already. We'd also like to thank Culture App, my employer. They are the creators of a web app that companies use to make their workplaces better places to work. It enables you to collect, understand, and act on employee feedback. And we are looking for Elm engineers to join our team in Melbourne, Australia. So get in touch at cultureamp.com slash jobs. We also want to thank Joel Claremont, our recording sponsor. He sponsors us financially every month on Patreon, and we thank him for that. He is the organizer of the Milwaukee Functional Programming and Milwaukee PHP meetup groups. You can find him at Jay Claremont on Twitter. And uh, yeah, feel free to reach out to him, especially if you're in that part of the world. And last but not least, our producer, Xavier Ho, making us all sound great. We owe you the world, Xavier. And finally, I would like to encourage you, listener, to join us on Slack, the Elm-Town channel on Slack, on the Elm Slack community, is now open, and that's the place to drop by if you want to have a casual conversation about what you hear on the show today. So, without further ado, let's dive in. Manuel, Game Boy emulator in Elm. I have so many questions, but maybe let's start with your journey. How would you describe yourself as a developer and how you got to writing Elm? Oh boy, that's a long story. <laughs> uh, I started very early, like as a kid, uh, hacking like basic programs on an Amiga, um, and then later got into Java. Yep. because I wanted to build a website for my game. And I intended to buy a JavaScript book, but I did the mistake of buying a Java book. <laughs> <laughs> so I did Java. Yep. We've all uh, been there. Yeah, typical mistake, I guess. <laughs> so how far did you get with Java? Oh, I did it like, I don't know, until 2006, I think. Did you end up making a website with it? There was only a very thin sliver of history during which like Java seemed like a good tool for building a personal website. Oh yeah, I like immediately noticed that that wasn't the book I intended to buy. <laughs> and yeah, I just built games with Java then and right. uh, had a website made with front page. <laughs> with applets on it? No, 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 I didn't go that route. <laughs> All right, so what sort of games did you make in Java? Basically, I tried everything that like a kid would want to try, right? So building a Pong clone, a Breakout clone. Right. I'm not very good at making games, like especially designing games. So I realized that at some point and then got into building applications instead. Uh, Christmas 2009, someone asked me uh, what they could get me. And I saw Scala as, uh, as a new thing on the block. And I knew it would run on the JVM. And I said, yeah, just buy me a Scala book. And mm. that's fine. Uh, so I did Scala for like 2009 until now. 
and the web development stuff uh, was always a side thing for me. Yeah, so after 2009, I dropped Java completely because Scala is so much better than, than Java, especially the functional parts of Scala. For those like me who've never written any Scala, how would you describe it as a language? That's hard to do because it's Java and then you have like functional programming mixed in. If I recall my journey in Scala, it started as a better Java, basically, mm. nicer syntax and everything. And along the way, I picked up more functional programming patterns and learned about functional programming. So was it a bit of a gateway into the world of FP for you? Yeah, it was. It was. Mm -hmm. Like the first time I mapped the list was so awesome. I was used to iterating over lists and mutating state. And after I signed up, I was like, why didn't I do this in the first place? And in the meantime, were you also doing any front-end development? Um, did you eventually get that JavaScript book? <laughs> I did get a JavaScript book, the, the famous JavaScript, The Good Parts, but I never liked it. <laughs> but I had to do it because like all my professional career I did in web development, actually. Switched back to back-end development a bit, but... I had to learn front-end development, yes. I remember a colleague of mine uh, telling me I would like JavaScript because it's functional and he thought I was a functional guy and, and all that. Mm -hmm. And they dismissed it. I said, <laughs> no, no, I don't want to use that. It has no type system. Go away. I have to use it when I need to use it and that's, that's all. As I picked up more FP in Scala, I, I was thinking, yeah, he's right. But I really never liked JavaScript because of the lack of a type system. So at my current job, we also do front-end development. And we had the need of a new back-end system. And we thought it might be a good idea to do a single-page application. Mm -hmm. And we had dipped our toes in, in React and all the latest JavaScript stuff. Uh, but a colleague of mine said, you should look into Elm. And I dismissed it because uh, I got burned by CoffeeScript. Ah, yeah. Um, so I dismissed Elm and didn't really look at it. Like, I was pretty ignorant looking back. But eventually I did look into it because he kept telling me how awesome it is. And it has a type system and I really should take a look at it. And I tried it out. I immediately fell in love with it. So I, I should have tried it before. Especially the functional programming part is what made me love Elm. There should be a special uh, holiday for the people who introduce us to the, the tools that uh, we, we know and love today. I mean, uh, uh, everyone at Cultramp owes great debt to, uh, to Marcos, who introduced Elm there. And I don't think we would have discovered it if he hadn't introduced it and then reintroduced it and suggested it on several occasions until finally we had the right moment to follow his advice and check it out. Yeah, where would we all be without those people in our lives who suggested we use this amazing thing? Yeah, that should be a thing. So you had a colleague who suggested you try out Elm. I imagine you gave it a try. Uh, and somehow you ended up writing a Game Boy emulator with it. Was that like your first big Elm project, that emulator? Or had you already been using it for other projects and, and you, were, you, you were wanting to do something a little different? So we built a single page application at work. And I liked it a lot. And I wanted to do something with Elm in my spare time. But I thought... Now doing the same thing again, or similar thing again, uh, wouldn't be like fun. So I thought, what could I do? What would make <laughs> sense for me? And it's, it's cool, right? 
was that the goal of this project? Was it just something that would be fun to build? Or were you trying to expose yourself to any particular part of Elm, trying to see how it did any particular thing? Basically just fun, yes. Yeah. And learning new stuff. Because I'm not an emulator guy or something. That came last. The first thing was, I want to do Elm. Well, that was going to be my next question, is whether like emulators were a thing for you. And so that was a natural project to take on. It sounds like it wasn't. Building a Game Boy emulator, it, it was your first experience with emulators? I did build a bad Chip 8 emulator in Scala once, just to try okay. out some new library or something. What is that? What is Chip 8? Chip 8 is a very tiny virtual machine thing from the 70s mm. um, that some guy invented to uh, port his games easier. And if you Google it, there are like 10 games or 15 games out there and that's it. But the appealing thing is it's pretty small. Like if you want to start doing development for uh, emulators, that's a good first project to tackle. So what made Game Boy an appealing thing to implement in Elm? I had one as a kid. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yep, you, me, and many of the kids in the world. I, uh, I was just playing last night before recording this show i was playing uh tetris effect on my playstation 4 this is the brand new tetris game and it, it's in in many respects exactly the same little tetris game we all played in black and white on our game boys way back then i thought it was just a funny coincidence that the day after the amazing ps4 particle effects phantasmagoria of uh of gaming comes out we, we go back and talk about the the original place where many of us discovered that iconic game yeah you don't need fancy graphics for good games <laughs> not necessarily <laughs> Well, I went, I went back and had a look to remind myself what Tetris looked like on the Game Boy. And the thing I had forgotten is that each of the bricks was a different color. Like there were maybe four different textures for bricks. As you built things up and they eliminated lines, you ended up with kind of a random pattern of, of textures in the play field, which is not something that uh, I've seen in current Tetris games. So in some ways it was superior. Yeah, they use colors sometimes, <laughs> which was an option on the original Game Boy. What was your ambition with this project? Was there a particular game that you wanted to see if you could emulate sufficiently well? Or was just getting a, a functional Game Boy, was that the goal? The journey was the goal. I, I just wanted to build a Game Boy emulator. I had a list of like five games that I really enjoyed as a kid. The one that stands out the most is the Zelda game for the Game Boy, which mm. I played hours like countless hours and fighting with my sister over the Game Boy in the game. Tetris was the first game I tried running on the emulator because it's a very simple game. Simple for the Game Boy hardware itself to run? Like, does it not use many features of the thing? Yeah, and especially no fancy tricks. Like later Game Boy games, the developers figured out uh, how to use timings and and all that to produce effects and all that. So building a 100% accurate Game Boy emulator is basically impossible. I've seen other Game Boy emulators done in other technologies. I remember a, a memorable conference talk where someone showed their Game Boy emulator implemented in Ruby. And I guess I just assumed it was this target to build uh, an emulator because maybe the hardware was simple and easy to emulate. Is that at all true or not at all true? It depends. Like, I think the Nintendo Entertainment System would be easier to emulate because it's better understood. There is a transistor-accurate emulation out there for the Nintendo Entertainment System, whereas for the Game Boy, it isn't. 
There isn't. Wow, not at all after all this time. No, there is one guy that builds custom hardware and plugs it into his zombie Game Boys and tries to figure out how timings work and everything. So without people like this, it would be impossible to write a Game Boy emulator. Mm. So it's all reverse engineered at this point. Yeah, it is. There's some mm. Nintendo official programming guide floating around the internet that <laughs> leaked somehow, but it's less accurate than the reverse engineered stuff, actually. So going into the project, what assumptions did you have? What expectations did you have? And what turned out to be different? I imagined it being easier, actually. I had the experience with the Chip 8 emulator, and I thought, yeah, maybe I could do like the sprites on the screen mm. uh, as image tags and render it like in a div or something. Yeah, I guess I would imagine somewhere in memory there would be two-dimensional array representing the pixels of the screen and each one would contain a number saying what color it was and I would just render that array a certain number of seconds or whenever it changed using the Elm architecture and I would call it a day. Is it not at all like that? Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, but when I dived in deeper into it, I realized that the Game Boy screen is uh, drawn like an old CRT monitor, line by line. And games use this to produce effects. Like if you want to have a wobbly thing, like the old demos did on the Amiga or something, mm. they would change properties of the rendering just before each line is drawn. And if I would just use an image tag for a sprite, which spans multiple lines, I couldn't emulate those effects. So I have to draw pixel by pixel. The actual display surface uh, in the web browser, did it end up being images? Or I mean, what is it that is shown in the browser window? It's just a canvas. And I push uh, pixel data from Elm via a port to it. And that's basically it. Uh, so I produce an array of pixels in Elm and then push it to a canvas. So right away, you've got a stateful, persistent view, and Elm's view rendering is not designed that way. So right away, that with just that one difference from your expectation, it pushes you way out of, I guess, standard Elm architecture territory. Yes, very much so. <laughs> so how early in the process did you realize that, and did it make you rethink Elm as a tool? No, I, I never doubt um, Elm for that project because I wanted to do Elm. Yeah, that was the point. So you went, wow, okay, this is going to be hard, but that's I'm kind of here for the challenge. Right, right. And I kept pushing and pushing and pushing and thinking, like, in the shower, can Elm do it really? Like, should I stop? I had, like, doubts of the whole project, not of Elm, right? Yeah. I knew what I was getting into. But I did push on, and it was pretty slow when I released it. Uh, in the end, just one little tip pushed it to, like, 60 frames per second for early Whoa, games. What was that? It was basically just replacing updating records with creating new ones. So I did that for the whole code base, and it looks horrible, but it's way, way faster. In some cases, some functions run 12,000% uh, faster than before. Wow. Yeah, something way back in the corner of my mind is telling me that uh, creating objects in JavaScript can be expensive. Modifying JavaScript objects rather than creating new ones for each each frame or each state, I guess. 
It reminds me this this rendering challenge because as soon as you said canvas, I remember the last time I tried to render stuff uh, with canvas in Elm, and that was uh, uh, shortly before we had Xavier Ho on as a guest to talk about generative art. And in those kinds of projects where you're writing code that generates, just like the Game Boy display, a, a matrix of pixels of certain colors and the order things are rendered in, you, you paint things on top of each other and get interesting effects. Uh, was it very inconvenient addressing your view through ports or was it a fairly simple instruction set that you ended up having to implement? I have like on each animation frame, the array of pixels that I just can push to JavaScript and that's it. There is no draw this and draw this. That's all done in Elm. But I had performance problems because of the array getting pretty large. The resolution of the Game Boy is 160 pixels by 144 pixels. Okay. So it's a lot of integers you have to push around. I ended up packing those pixels tightly together so I have to serialize less JSON for the ports. So I have like 16 pixels in one int, which fits perfectly because each pixel in the Game Boy is just two bits. <laughs> So it fits, uh, 16 pixels fit neatly into a 32-bit integer. You said you were sending paint instructions out with each animation frame. Were you actually doing the, the scanning process? Were you pushing out lines of rendered output with each frame? Or were you like re-rendering the whole screen uh, uh, as, a, as a unit? I'm rendering line by line. That's what I do. Um, and as I said, it's 144 lines per screen. Uh, so while I'm doing that, the screen isn't updating for the user. It doesn't see that. So it updates once every time it has scanned all the way from the top to the bottom? Exactly, yes. Okay, yeah, right. So that's, uh, I guess that's a, a useful simplification for you. But as you were saying, there would be some games that depend on effects, which therefore wouldn't be visible in your implementation. No, they should work like normal, but you don't see why they are being drawn. Right, okay. So the picture is, I built the picture internally in Elm and then pushed the finished picture um, to JavaScript and you see the effect because for one frame, there are between 5,000 and 16,000 instructions the CPU processes. Mm. And at the same time, in parallel, that's in air quotes, <laughs> <laughs> the PPU, the pixel processing unit, builds the picture. Yeah. So there's a lot of state changing while the picture is being drawn. But when it's done, I show it to the user. So what other issues did you have to solve? I, I mean, I had a play around with, uh, with Elm Boy before, and the very first thing I noticed is that you upload an actual Game Boy ROM file to the web page, which I guess means you are having to decode the uh, the binary data for that uploaded file in some way. That also strikes me as something that would be not trivial to do in Elm. Yeah, uh, when I started the project, I had hex strings in my source code because I didn't <laughs> want to tackle that problem, uh, which also meant I had to reset the Git repo before I published it so I don't have like games pushed on GitHub that yeah, would be right. quite yep. illegal. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so how does it work now? I have a file input, and whenever on change is fired, on in JavaScript land, I look at um, the array that JavaScript provides for the file and convert it so that Elm can read it as a regular array 
and then send it through a pod. The conversion of the binary data to some value that Elm can, a JSON decodable value, that's done in JavaScript land. So you're doing that, that binary data interpretation before you hand the ROM over to, to Elm? Right. It's an array of integers. Mm -hmm. Are there any other ways in which, uh, in which Elm Boy would be different from a typical Elm project that people might be working with day to day? Oh, yeah, very much. Like you mentioned before, uh, I cannot use DM architecture for anything that's emulation related. Right. Why not? There are a lot of state changes while emulating. Um, mm -hmm. Per second, there are almost 1 million state changes. Yeah. So wow. if I would do that with the regular update cycle in Elm, that would be quite slow. That was my first idea how to do it, but it didn't turn out to work that well. Right, so just having a, a, an animation frame come in and your emulator going, okay, this much time has passed, so I have to do all of these things as part of this update cycle, that wasn't going to be practical. Yeah. So if you can't use the Elm architecture, I mean, what does your app even look like? It looks like a typical Elm app if you just scrape the surface. Yeah. Because for the UI and everything, it's just a typical Elm app. Okay. But... If the time is right to draw a frame to display to the user, I just have one function that I call and say, okay, emulate the current state for 16 milliseconds. Mm. And then I have a function that is basically a very tight loop that generates the data I need to display to the user. So it's a very tight loop, and it's interesting, like loops are something that when I move into functional programming, when I first started doing things in Elm, I had to let go of loops a lot. Like all of my, my loop-based programming techniques kind of stopped working in that world. I, I use the term loop very loosely. It's a recursive function. So there's one function that um, says, here I emulate one instruction for the CPU and everything that's related to it. And I have another function that recursively calls that function until the given time has passed. And so 16 milliseconds gives you 60 frames per second, which looks smooth on a modern display. Was the original Game Boy running at 60 frames per second? Was it kind of tied to that timing? Yeah, it was. It, it, okay. it runs at 59 point something. <laughs> of course it does. Yeah, so if you have a modern console and it doesn't run at 60 frames, you can say, hey, the Game Boy did it, why can't you? <laughs> so you mentioned if someone were to go and peruse the code of Elm Boy, and, and I think I would encourage people to do that if they've listened this far and are curious about the project. You said on the surface it does look like a normal Elm app, but as you start to drill in, you will find these differences. What, what things would you encourage people to go and look at in the code base, or what interesting things are there to be discovered? I think the best place to start looking for real emulation code is the CPU. Uh -huh. Because there's little weirdness going on compared to pixel processing unit stuff. And what people will discover, it's, it looks like a normal L map. Like you have a state and an update. And that's how a CPU works, right? You have this global state of the whole system and you interpret one instruction for the CPU and the state changes. That's exactly how it works with a normal L map, right? You have your model and your messages and you have a new model after that. And what you also will find is like, a file with 1,200 lines just of a mapping from bytes to functions that uh, <laughs> move the state forward. So that's like the, the implementation of the CPU instruction set. Exactly, yes. Many instructions are similar, 
in a way that they do the same operation, but write the result into a different register or memory location. And so there's a different instruction for each of those destination registers. You're right, there is. I implement those instructions once, obviously, and have a little reader, writer thing going on in the code base that uh, maps or encapsules the reading and writing to a different memory location. And I combine those functions, three functions into one. And that is what each opcode uh, is doing. Now you're talking. That's starting to sound satisfying to me. I, I, I Suddenly I want to work on this. <laughs> um, so that 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 implementation of a big instruction set would be uh, a, a gigantic case statement, I imagine. Uh, no, it isn't. I'm using uh, an array that holds all of around 500 opcodes. Because it neatly fits the way the opcodes are encoded, there's one ID, so to speak, for each instruction. And they start at zero and go up to 500 something. So I can just use an array and use array.get to get the function to interpret that instruction. Right, it's a list of functions. Each opcode, I guess, in the uh, in the instruction set is an index that you, you use to look up the function that you then execute. Exactly. This is now starting to sound like something that functional programming is good for. I, I, we've talked a bit about the things that made Elm an inconvenient tool to build this in. Are there any other ways in which you were super glad you had Elm and its features to solve these problems? Yeah, right. But it really fits well. Like I was surprised uh, actually how well it fit. But if you think about it, it's just state that's moved forward by a function. So why wouldn't functional programming fit? And I think the, the end result in the code is very much readable, especially if you compare it to a classical emulator written in C or some other low-level language. I would imagine a lot of Game Boy emulators out there went through a period of a lot of instability where you know, they hadn't covered every particular edge case or every particular nuance of the instruction set. And therefore, you run the wrong game or you get into the wrong part of a game and the thing just crashes in a heap. The thing about Elm is that it never crashes. What was the experience of working towards the first running version of, of the emulator? Was it um, running in limited primitive ways? Or were you doing that thing where you spent a long time just following the instructions of the compiler and the first time it ran, it, it mostly did everything it was supposed to? That's sadly not the case. Because I'm emulating hardware, uh, I'm ex exposed to all the issues that I would have if I would build a literal Game Boy out of components. So... Um, if I did something wrong, and I did a lot of stuff wrong, uh, you could end up in endless loops. And it's very hard to debug. I spent countless hours of reading bytecode of Game Boy ROMs just wow. to figure out where my emulator took a bad turn and everything, <laughs> like, as you said, crashed. Elm helped tremendously uh, refactoring the application. Yes. I did that, like, three or four times, like, overhauling everything because my assumptions... Uh, did not hold, so I had to change it. And that was super awesome to work with. I pretty early on realized it's basically just state and functions. And I looked up to see if there's uh, a library that already implements what I need. And I found uh, M state, and it worked. But when I came to a point where actually code is running, Game Boy code that is, 
it was way too slow because I was creating anonymous functions all over. So I had to throw that out and uh, now I have a specialized version of that that's uh, tailored to my problem. I'm not familiar with the Elm state package. In what way does it manage state? I would guess like what does that package do and what did you end up having to, to implement yourself? It's basically a wrapper around state and you give it a function to run on that state and it gives you another wrapped state that you can add another transformation on and it keeps track of all this and you can run it in the end. So you combine a chain of operations you want to do and then say, okay, now run this and give me the end state. Especially it provides map functions so you can change the state shape without applying a state change. It's pretty convenient and I like the library a lot. Yeah. For people who are not building emulators, you would recommend it? Yeah, I, I think so. When I started the project, I tried to be as Elmy as possible, like having nice <laughs> types for everything. I'm used to using types for like 15 years now, so I can't imagine doing any project without types. Mm. In the beginning, it helped a lot because I was, because I could be certain that my parts fit together because of the types. Mm. And I started wrapping bytes in their own opaque type. I had a word 8 and a word 16 type. So I couldn't mess those up. But in the end, I threw a lot of this out because at one point I came frustrated how slow everything was. And I just took my axe and removed any abstraction uh, I could find in the code that wasn't really necessary. Yeah. And then is this the point at which you ended up with those like packed integers containing a bunch of bytes? Yeah, right. Uh, especially the opaque types for word 8 and word 16 yeah. became just integers. Oh, that's so, that's so sad in a way. It is. <laughs> it is. And I, I want to reintroduce those types. Uh, that was the original plan, like throw everything out and then look what can I add back in without much of a performance impact. In hindsight, I think I wouldn't do that again. Uh, I should have benchmarked before removing all of this because now <laughs> it's more work to put it back in, right? It would be nice if there were some way to have like a, a development time representation of these things that gave you confidence about the integrity of your system and then a high performance runtime implementation that you could switch to uh, for the actual uh, shipped version of the, of the code. But I, I can't imagine how that could work. When I worked on Amboy, uh, I did it in uh, point 18. Point 19 came out and I read about... Um, the minus minus optimize flag. Yes. And it said that opaque types, if you use them in a certain way, are just stripped away from the uh, runtime. Yeah, it unwraps them for you. Yeah, right. And uh, I almost jumped out of my seat. I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I need. I can keep all that's in and it's fast. I had modules with the opaque types in them for word 8 and word 16. And as it turns out, if you do an emulator, you have to do a lot of bit shifting and bit joining and all that jazz. Uh, and because I'm using my own custom type, I had to wrap the bitwise module uh, for my own types. Mm. And it was hard to use because I always had to import the module and then feed in my type. And if I would try to combine a word 8 with a word 16, I had to write a specialized function for that. And it just blew up. And so I decided uh, throwing those opaque types out just using ints so I can use the bitwise library. Mm. Uh, and had to force myself to be more disciplined. 
to actually ensure my integers didn't grow too large for a byte. So I, you see a lot of bitwise and 0xff in the code. Wow, okay. So having gotten Elm Boy to its current state, is there anything like, what is the top of your list of things to go back and change? I think first I want to make more games compatible. If you can compare Amboy to other emulators, it's in a very early state. I have to say it runs Tetris pretty well. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> and Zelda too, and, and Mario Brothers and all that. that. That works. Okay. But there's one game in particular I want to have working, that's Pokemon, because it's another game I, I played a lot. And is that like a late Game Boy game? And so they had figured out all of the tricks to get the most out of the hardware? Yeah, sadly, yes. There's another issue with different games is that the cartridges you put into the Game Boy also have hardware in them. Oh, wow. So depending on the game, you have to emulate the cartridge hardware as well. And the Pokemon game uses an advanced memory mapping uh, chip that I haven't implemented yet. Mm. So besides uh, the tricks the developer used uh, for the game, I have to emulate another piece of hardware, especially for that game. Yeah, right. And so those compatibility enhancements, are any of those particularly challenging or are they just doing the work of adding more features to the, to the thing? What I want to do right now is just work. It's not particularly challenging because uh, I mentioned the memory mapper in Pokemon. Mm. I have memory mapper support for some other chips. So the difference is, is tiny. Yeah. compared to the whole emulator code base. Mm. So I just have to put some work into it. And then I think I can work on making the code base more readable and introducing nicer types again. And uh, I plan to introduce uh, comments throughout the code so that someone who's interested in uh, emulators can just look in the code and follow the comments to see what's going on. Yeah. Because if there is something my project could be good at is teaching because it will never be a very good Game Boy emulator compared to the others that are out there, right? So I think the purpose for this project could be teaching people how emulators work. In a way, is that your ambition for this project? To, to make it something that people would get something out of reading the code? Yeah, I think that's the ultimate goal right now. And if, uh, if there are people listening to this and thinking, that sounds like an amazing project, I would like to be involved. Is this something that you kind of are doing for yourself and you would prefer to keep it a solo endeavor or would you welcome involvement of some kind? Oh, everyone is welcome. Like read the code. If you know Game Boy especially, help fixing like some crazy bugs. I'm totally fine with that. Yeah. If someone else wanted to build the Pokemon memory mapper that you would be very, very happy for them to do so? Yeah, right, right. That's, that might be even a very good first project, even. <laughs> so supporting new games is a big thing. I notice also that the advice is to run it in Chrome. And I have to say, having run it in Chrome, at least running a simple game like Tetris, it keeps up pretty well. It sits on 60 frames per second most of the time. But what is the performance like on more complex games? Is getting it running well in other browsers a challenge? At first, I usually use Firefox. So the first runs of the emulator were done in Firefox. And it turned out to be super, super slow. Uh, I tried it in, in Chrome. It was like uh, double the speed. Wow. 
And I think it's just because of Chrome's optimization, internal optimization they do. It would be a challenge to figure out what is slowing other browsers down or what is Google Chrome doing better than the other browsers so I can help other browsers to run it faster. Have you put this app through like the browser's profiling tools to get an idea of what it's spending its time doing or is, is the, uh, are the code paths too tricky to follow to get useful information out of that? Yeah, I was a bit scared when I first fired up the profiler. Uh, <laughs> I thought I could see my functions being called and have the names and everything. But as it turned out, Elm is wrapping each function in a FN wrapper so you can do currying. It's hard to read the profile output. Uh, but in some cases, I really dived into it and got through the call stack to see what's going on. And that's when I realized that uh, record updating was a problem. I didn't have a solution yet. But uh, I saw that record updates took like 60% of the time. What does that look like in a profiler? Is there a particular function in the Elm runtime that updates records and so you could see that? Yeah, exactly. I can't recall the uh, exact name, but they're prefixed somehow. And I read a lot of Elm compiler output. <laughs> <laughs> what did you learn about Elm in doing that? I've, I myself have not looked at Elm compiler output. It's pretty uh, readable. If you ask me, especially if you don't use minus minus optimize, mm. you can browse the code and read it like a normal JavaScript code because variable names are just translated into JavaScript. So you can um, just read your code. Yeah. And I did this a lot. Like in some places, I changed the compiler output to see if I could improve the performance. And then thinking about how can I uh, force M to produce that output? So the other way around, basically. Oh, wow, really? And were you successful in finding ways to get the achieved output? Not really, um, but it was a, a nice learning experience, yeah. that's for sure. Gets me thinking terrible things like uh, like uh, post-processing the compiled Elm to, to make the, uh, the changes that you would want for performance. <laughs> yeah, I, I had that in mind too, but I immediately was like, no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> like, release it in a slow state. That's better than messing yes. with the output. So are there parts of it that are, like, for you, painfully slow at the moment? There's work to be done or maybe no easy way to improve it? I'm super happy with the replacement of record updates with creations. It, it boosted it so much. And I have to thank uh, Robin Hagland Hansen for that tip. He saw my announcement on Slack, and he was one of the first ones to comment on it and said, I just shortly looked at your code, and maybe you should try this. <laughs> I was like, hmm, does it really, like, is, is it really faster? And then I did it and I was like, wow. Wow, why did I worry about performance so much before? <laughs> so I owe him a lot. Yeah, and especially readability. Um, I have to be honest to myself, it will never be as fast as, as low-level emulators. So I shouldn't focus too much on it, I think, and just focus on readability and compatibility with like popular games and not trying to fix every emulation issue there ever will be. So apart from uh, updating records in the right way, anything else that you did that, uh, that achieved performance gains? Yeah, I inlined some functions. Uh, wasn't so dependent on the JavaScript runtime to do that for me. Google Chrome does a pretty good job of doing it. Right. Uh, but other brothers don't. So I have some ridiculously long let-in blocks, especially bit manipulation. There are a lot of cases where I need to inspect a, a bit of a byte. And what you usually do is you, you end the value with another value that just masks the one bit off and then shift it to the right so you have one or zero. 
Mm -hmm. That would be a perfect candidate to put into a function so you can say, give me bit three of this byte and it returns a Boolean. And I had that before and then I replaced it uh, and inlined all that bit fiddling in the functions where I needed to do it. So it sounds like there were two major areas where where things could potentially get slow or bottleneck, and it was function calls and record updates. And the tools you used to address those were inlining function code where the browser wasn't sufficiently able to optimize it for you. And to optimize the updating of records, how did you achieve that again? Instead of using um, syntax with the pipe, so I say, like, uh, I have a record let's call it x, and I say x pipe foo equals the new value. Yep. Instead, I type out the whole record again, change the one field I want to change, and manually copying the values from the earlier record over. Yeah, wow, that's surprising. I wonder if there's anything Elm could be doing better to optimize that case. If creating a new record by copying all of its fields is faster than updating an existing record, could all record updates be implemented that way? But I think for regular Elm applications, that's not an issue, right? I'm doing so, so many uh, record updates in one second. I think it, it goes into the millions. And a regular Elm application shouldn't do that, right? Thank you so much for sharing uh, all of that, Manuel. I know we got into some uh, pretty detailed technical conversation, which is always a little difficult on an audio podcast. But I think we did pretty well. Yeah, I think so too. My final question for you would be, would, was writing a Game Boy emulator in Elm as much fun as you hoped it would be? Yeah, totally. It was. <laughs> I have to thank Elm for it too. Like, it's 50-50. Like, writing Game Boy emulators is fun, but writing them in Elm especially. Well, thanks for joining us, Manuel. Uh, once again, listeners, if you'd like to connect with Manuel, uh, you can join us in the Elm-Town channel on the Elm Slack, or you can find Manuel on Twitter at Malax, M-A-L-A-X. And that is also Manuel's GitHub username where you can find the source code of Elmboy and uh, Elmboy running on a web page for you. You don't even have to set this thing up yourself. You can go to malax.github.io slash Elmboy and try it out for yourself. There's a, a link to a, a nice uh, legal open source ROM that you can play. Uh, or if you happen to have some Game Boy games hanging around, you can plug them in yourself and see what runs and what doesn't. I think I'm going to get back to playing some Tetris, Manuel. <laughs> yeah, me too. Like, <laughs> we should implement link cable support or something for multiplayer. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for joining us in Elmtown. Thanks for having me.